Hello, and welcome to Out West, the official podcast of the Western Governors Association, a bipartisan organization representing the governors of the 22 westernmost states and territories. I'm Jim Ogsbury, Executive Director of WGA. This episode is the second in a series on working lands, working communities, the WGA Chair Initiative of Idaho Governor Brad Little. Governor Little's initiative is examining the interdependent relationships between Western communities and state and federal land and resource managers, as well as the role that local communities play in successful land planning and management. In this episode, WGA Policy Advisor Jonah Seifer sits down with Ben Woodkey, Executive Director for the Intermountain Forest Association, to discuss threats to forest health and how a collaborative all-lands approach to active forest management is building forest resilience in the West. So, Ben, tell us a little bit about your background and what inspired you to get into this work. Yeah, thanks, Jonah. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity to be here today. My background's a little bit different than a, a lot of people's working in, in forestry. And when I left high school, I wasn't quite ready for college. And so I was moving around a lot and left Kansas to Oklahoma. And one of the, my stops was here in Colorado Springs. During my time in, in the springs, I really started spending more time in the mountains, in the forests, and really falling in love with what they have to offer and, and developing an appreciation. And found myself enrolling in college here first at Metro State and then moving up to Fort Collins and going to school at Colorado State University where I did a couple of degrees there. My graduate work was in the Black Hills of South Dakota and that's where I'm based now. And it's my understanding that the Intermountain Forest Association is based up there as well, right? That's where our office is, but we really operate in Region 2 of the Forest Service. So we operate in, in Colorado, Wyoming, South Dakota, Nebraska. We have a member in Montana as well. And our members are forest product companies, harvest professionals, other concerned individuals who care about the forest, who want to see it managed, want to see it sustainable. So that's what we're here to talk about today is forest health and sustainability we have a few case studies that we'll be discussing throughout the episode, but before we really get into those, I think it's important to understand just the real mechanics of forest health to understand the problems at hand. Can you explain to listeners what exactly is driving different forest health issues like the mountain pine beetle epidemic or the wildfire crisis? When we talk about forest health and sustainability, that looks different depending on where you are and what forest type you're in. When we start talking about bark beetles in general and we start talking about the wildfire crisis, we're really talking about the role that forest density is playing. And that concept spans different forest types. It looks different depending on what type of forest you're looking at and what type of forest you're working in. But the concept of too dense of forests is what's really driving the forest health crises that we're facing in this country. So this question about desirable forest conditions is kind of interesting to me because not only is it changed by geography, but also whose desires and the actual values at play there. Could you maybe speak to that a little? Oftentimes when I'm talking to different groups, I talk about desired conditions. Desired conditions to me influence a lot of the actions that we push for as an association. And we believe that it should influence the actions pushed for by agencies and other organizations as well. And it gets down to 
What do you want to see on the landscape now, today, and what do you want to see on the landscape 10 years from now, 20 years, 50 years from now, and having a fairly good idea of how you get there? Because sometimes what you want to see 10 years from now isn't what you see today or vice versa. And I'll oftentimes put up pictures of a green forest, and generally the response is, it's great. There's lots of trees. It's green. What's not to love? But it's when you start peeling it apart and looking at the lack of understory production for wildlife, when you start looking at pictures taken in the same place immediately following a wildfire, when you start looking at the impacts that those green, dense conditions have on what we really want to see on the landscape long term, that's when you start realizing that Sometimes our desired conditions don't always line up with what we think is good today and what we want to see on the landscape in the long run. So while there's plenty of consensus around where we want to go, that is improving the health of our forests, the actual path to get there is a little bit more contested. The Black Hills Regional Mountain Pine Beetle Working Group is one of the many forest collaboratives that has pursued this vision of resilient forests and done so successfully. Can you tell me about your role at this group and how their strategy worked on the ground? The Mountain Pine Beetle Working Group and their strategy has been heralded as a resounding success, both within the Forest Service and across multiple organizations, including ours. It was a collaborative in the truest sense, in my mind. When you look at the makeup of the actual working group and who were actually coming up with the actions and targeting the implementation of them, it was very diverse. We had all seven counties in the Black Hills. We had both states, Wyoming, South Dakota four federal agencies, Forest Service, BLM, NRCS, even National Park Service was attending those meetings and doing what they could on their land. It was truly an all-hands approach. And in my mind, that's what really made it successful is that all of these parties came to the table with the one goal of bringing the mountain pine beetle epidemic back to endemic status. Through that, they really developed a five-year strategy. And that strategy focused on thinning. How do we target the capacity of the forest products industry there in treating the landscape and coordinating that among all the different entities and the resources that they could bring to the table. As you can imagine, that's not an easy task, but what you get in the end is a successful product. You have a success story to tell, and that's what we really have in the Black Hills. We didn't win every battle, but we certainly won the war with the epidemic being declared over in 2017. And if you've been to the Black Hills lately, you, you know that we have a lot of green forests left. So, Ben, you mentioned the incredible success of the Black Hills Regional Mountain Pine Beetle Working Group. Another really successful case is the Buffalo Fire in Silverthorne. Could you talk a little bit about why this was a particularly successful response to a wildfire? Absolutely. This was more or less a case study that came out from Department of Ag, Buffalo Fire in 2018. And the fire started just outside Silverthorne and was moving very quickly, but it hit a fuel break that had been installed around the community. And that fuel break was credited with saving $1 billion worth of homes. 1,400 homes, they estimated, were saved by that single fuel break. It's an incredible success story. And while there's a lot of tragedy unfolding around the West that we have to be aware of, I think that drives a lot of our conversation we also have to be aware of the successes that we're seeing, uh, that we're seeing in this fire. And there's a number of other examples over the years as well, including just, just last year that maybe we can talk about later. But we have to be looking at the successes on the landscape 
and what made them successful so that we can be bringing those forward. I think one of the factors that really contributed to the success in this case was the Forest Service's Forest to Faucets program, which is pretty innovative because it got Denver Water, a downstream water utility that supplies its customers from water that comes off of Buffalo Mountain, to actually help finance this treatment and in doing so connected those downstream users to the land upstream that they rely on. Oftentimes you hear, well, why is Denver Water, why are water producers interested in forest management 100 miles away from where they're supplying customers? And it really boils down to the impacts of water quality from wildfires, particularly high severity wildfires, those fires that we see on the evening news where you go back to where they burned and it's black and there's just not a forest left there. Those types of fires have incredible impacts to water quality. And a lot of this attention to forest management from water suppliers really started with the Hayman fire and not only the uh, degradation of water quality following that fire, but the enormous investments that they had to make, including Denver Water, to treat that water and to dredge reservoirs, etc. There was a recognition that they could be more proactive. They could be on the front end and doing beneficial work on the landscape versus just trying to treat the water following wildfires. And this fuel break outside of Silverthorne is, is an example of that, where you're seeing benefits to the water suppliers because they're not left dealing with 100,000 acre fires that are degrading water quality that they have to invest in treatments. And you're also seeing benefits to communities as well. Yeah, these fuel break treatments are not a silver bullet, but they certainly do increase the probability of control as they did in the Buffalo fire. I believe that was the same case in the Badger Creek fire, correct? Absolutely. Similar time frame. This one was up on the Medicine Bow National Forest. And you make a good point that when we start talking about fuel breaks, when we start talking about forest management and and reducing the impacts from wildfires, we're not talking about stopping wildfires. We're really talking about influencing wildfire behavior and influencing the impacts that those wildfires have on the forest, on the ecology, on communities. And the Badger Creek Fire was another excellent example of this. The case study that the Department of Ag released talked about the fire growing quickly and moving rapidly, talked about 200-foot flame lengths. And as that fire moved into the fuels treatments that they had done just over the last few years ahead of that, the wildfire behavior reduced to a level that they could actually put in suppression efforts. They weren't able to fight the main body of the fire ahead of this But after it hit those fuel breaks, the fire sat down and allowed them to aggressively fight the fire, and it allowed them to save the community of of Wold Tract. I feel like this Badger Creek case, as well as the Buffalo case, are really good examples of what the USDA's strategy is trying to achieve, right? They're trying to tip the odds in the favor of communities to increase the chances that when fire ignites, not if, but when, that they'll be relatively safe. Absolutely. And... When we think about basic wildland firefighting knowledge, you think about the fire triangle where you have oxygen, fuel, and heat or ignition. You break any point of this triangle, you break one of those legs, and you don't have a fire anymore. And when we think about changing climate, we think about changing wildfire seasons, getting longer. Those are things that are very difficult to change immediately. They're important to change long term, but when we think about a 10-year strategy, I'm not sure that we can have the impact that we need 
on wildfire seasons, but we can influence the fuel point and we can change what that fuel structure looks like on the landscape and we can affect how that fire triangle looks, not only around communities, but in the forest as well. Yeah, for these natural resource issues that are inherently cross-boundary that don't obey any of the convenient political or geographic boundaries that we've laid down, it seems like these collaborative, all-hands type approaches are really the only way to address problems at scale. Back in October of 2021, you participated in a WGA Working Lands, Working Communities workshop here in Denver, Colorado. During the panel, you touched on the important role that the forest products industry can play in improving forest health at scale. Why are primary producers and forest contractors so important to doing this work? Most simply, we're the companies, we're the contractors who implement the prescriptions. And maybe we'll talk about this later, but the Forest Service just released their 10-year strategy. And at the core of it, their goal is to, one, treat more acres, nearly double, and two, recruit forest products companies to help them do it. In some areas, we're still blessed enough to have companies on the landscape to do the work. In others, there has to be a process to rebuild that. At the end of the day, the Forest Service doesn't have the equipment, the knowledge, the background to do the work, nor do other federal agencies. Private landowners certainly don't. You can't expect a private landowner to invest a million dollars in a piece of equipment and go out and do work on their land. It takes these contractors to do the work on the landscape, the vision to implement the prescriptions that states, federal agencies, private landowners, that everyone sees the need for on the, on the landscape. Yeah, when it comes to keeping these contractors solvent and operational, it seems like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So are there any low-hanging opportunities for promoting and supporting these essential businesses? It sounds like the USDA's new wildfire strategy, which we'll get to in a moment, will be a huge boon for the industry, but anything else that can help keep these businesses operational at their full capacity? At the core of it, and whether it's the 10-year strategy that's just been released, whether it's the increasing pace of restoration and job creation document, that the plan that came out in 2012 under the Obama administration, or any of the other great plans that have been developed over the years, it all boils down to getting the work done. And having the, the staffing, having the funding, having the, the desire to see those projects implemented on the landscape, that's the best way to keep companies solvent. In some places, there have been companies that have been brought in on stewardship contracts. Here in Colorado, there's a biomass power generation plant that's been working on a 10-year stewardship contract. And they've been very successful in treating acres, creating biomass-fueled power, and making that work. And it's, it's how you keep these new investments on the landscape, how you keep what you have already in place and keep them operational by keeping them busy, and then how do you look for new opportunities as well to develop new businesses? And certainly the, the biomass power generation plant was a new opportunity that went in just about 10 years ago now. But we have to look at how we keep the traditional infrastructure here as well because they've been very successful in a lot of places and in a lot of regards. Yeah, a lot of these new forest products like biochar or cross-laminated timber present a lot of promise for actually financing the restoration activities that we're talking about and creating additional markets for what was previously you know, really low value or less useful timber. Are there any new forest products in particular that you're excited about that have the potential to be really powerful funding mechanisms for future forest restoration work? 
That's an excellent question. And I think the answer on that kind of depends on where you are, what the forest types are, what the current industry is, and, and what the needs are. New products are, are always new opportunities. The question is, how soon do you want to be working? The 10-year strategy that came out from the Forest Service labels it a wildfire crisis. The 2012 document I referenced earlier under the Obama administration identified 65 to, I believe, 83 million acres in need of restoration. I think we need to be acting now. We've been talking collectively about the need to be active on the landscape for decades. And there, there is no time better than today to be working on implementing projects on the ground. To do that, you need to utilize existing markets, existing companies. Do the work that you can do now. You also have to be looking at new products, new markets, new opportunities to maybe treat a product, you know, a type of tree in the landscape that you couldn't do traditionally or with the markets that you have in place already. You need to be looking at how to develop new operations in places that don't have existing industry. But Ultimately, you have to be looking at what you have now if you want to be working today because we uh, as forestry professionals, we've been spending decades trying to develop these markets and we need to be acting sooner than that. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's new 10-year strategy for confronting the wildfire crisis calls for treating up to an additional 20 million acres on national forest system lands. That's 20 million acres in addition to their past annual average. And on top of that, another 30 million acres on federal, state, tribal, and private lands. Obviously, this effort is going to require a huge amount of coordination, investment, capacity. What do you think might be the weakest link in this plan? Is it staffing? Is it funding? Is it politics? Is there something that you see as one of the main impediments to actually implementing U.S. Department of Agriculture's 10-year plan? First, I think this is a monumental step in the right direction from, from the Department of Ag, the Forest Service, and follows in the steps of the 90-day climate smart strategy that came out of the Department of Ag last year, where they very clearly stated that what they're doing isn't enough to mitigate wildfire risk, particularly across the West, and called for increasing their efforts two to fourfold on treating acres. And this follows that, essentially calling on a twofold increase, doubling what they're doing now to reduce wildfire risk. Importantly, this strategy really looks at the 10% of at-risk acres that constitute 80% of the risk to communities. So when you look at the map in the document, you'll see that the front range of Colorado lights up bright red because there's a lot of at-risk forest here that hasn't been managed for a very long time with a lot of communities and a lot of people. Clearly, that's a very high-risk situation. Wyoming, while they have a lot of dense forests and a lot of areas that are at risk, is blank because they don't have a lot of those population centers. In South Dakota, you have a couple areas that show up in the Black Hills because, again, you have that nexus of at-risk forests and at-risk communities. And so the Forest Service, wanting to move this in the right direction here, has already held a couple national roundtable meetings where they're looking at how to implement this strategy because it's kind of follows in the same line as we talked about the mountain pine beetle response strategy in the Black Hills. It's a high-level document, identifies the need, a very urgent need, and identifies what needs to be done, but doesn't really identify how to do it. And to me, as we're talking about where's the bottleneck in getting these acres treated, 
where's the bottleneck in getting this strategy on the ground? It's an implementation. And that's, to me, has shown up in the roundtable meetings as well, where there's been a lot of discussion, how are you going to do this? Do you have the infrastructure in place to do it? If not, how do you get the infrastructure? How do you get community support? It's really in the implementation side that I think, again, we're seeing the bottleneck. We're seeing some struggle just as we have in years past. You think that issue of getting community support is going to be really challenging for the Forest Service? I know gaining social license or this perception of the government coming in and aggressively treating your surrounding area could be really threatening to local communities. How do you think they'll be able to approach that challenge of convincing folks that these really intense forest health treatments are necessary and good in the long run? I think that varies a lot by location. It's a very much place-based response. You go to areas that have had million-acre fires or had entire communities destroyed, I think they get it. They understand the threat. They see it as a very imminent risk. Other areas that maybe haven't experienced wildfires to that extent yet, haven't lost communities, maybe haven't had forest industry infrastructure there for some time, they may not exactly understand what this looks like and understand how it's going to be implemented. And I think those areas are going to take a little bit more work to really get that community buy-in. But the areas that have had fires, areas that have forest industry there that have seen the work being done over the years, I think there's a lot of community support for doing this activity. And we're already seeing that throughout this region, too, in the states of Colorado, Wyoming, South Dakota, seeing a lot of support at the county and state levels from their communities to get this work done, get this implemented on on the landscape. So many areas will understand this need right off the bat, and others might benefit more from the outreach effort that I know the Department of Agriculture will be conducting as part of this strategy. Absolutely. And a lot of this tears back to our discussion on desired conditions. I've talked to a number of homeowners, certainly not going to uh, say this is all of them, but many respond that they moved there for the trees, for the forest, certainly why I would move there. And the idea of cutting some of that forest to manage it is tough for them to really understand when they've moved there for those trees. When you talk to homeowners who have lost their homes, who have lost that forest that they moved there to, mountain pine beetles, to wildfires, my find that their responses are different now. They understand that there's action that needs to take place on that landscape. And while that forest might look a little bit different for a while, they're still going to have a green forest there after forest management. Whereas you don't always get that choice and the same outcome with natural events such as wildfire and mountain pine beetles. Is there an equivalent of creating defensible space with respect to the beetle epidemic, ways that homeowners are taking care of their personal property in order to resist beetle invasion? Absolutely. Homeowners can look at the mountain pine beetle epidemic and wildfire crises as largely the same. A lot of the treatments, a lot of the work that you would do to your forest are similar you're going to be reducing that forest density. And that ties back to the natural biology of how the mountain pine beetle works. It ties to fuels abundance and availability and structure for wildfires and how that influences fire behavior and severity. The one thing I oftentimes argue, though, is that we hear a lot of discussion about home ignition zones and defensible space and the need to do work there. And while that's critically important work, we're all interested in saving people's homes and livelihoods, I also question why we're not looking at that same strategy on the landscape. Why aren't we also as concerned about reducing fire severity and risk in the forest when we're talking about 
carbon, when we're talking about wildlife, when we're talking about water quality, we should have that same mindset of not only just protecting the home ignition zone and people's livelihoods, but also the very forest resources that we all love out on the landscape. So far, we've talked about wildfire mitigation, forest health treatments, pine beetles, and a handful of cases of successful intervention. I'd like our listeners to walk away with a positive perspective on the state of our forests, though. Despite all the challenges that Western communities face with mountain pine beetle and wildfire, what gives you hope about collaborative efforts to address these issues? Well, there is some hope out there. (laughs) I'll, I'll be honest, there's not as much as we'd like to see. And when we talk about collaboratives, when we talk about seeing hope on the horizon, you know, I, I look at the successes that some collaboratives are having, where they, all the parties at the table come with the idea of how do we get more done on the landscape? How do we influence these hazards and risks that are posed to our communities, to the forest that they recreate and to the forest that they love? Those collaboratives seem to be the most successful. The other thing that gives hope is that we are having more and more success stories, likely a function of more acres burned, where we're seeing those wildfires move over areas that have been thinned, have been harvested, been managed. So we're seeing more success stories, whether it's the Badger Creek fire or the the Buffalo fire we discussed. Uh, There's success stories coming out of the Boot Lake fire in Oregon. We're seeing success stories in the Black Hills with the Crick Hill fire that was late last year that burned in a a treated area where very little damage to the forest. It was actually a very beneficial fire. And what I think we want to be getting back to on the landscape is when we can talk about the benefits of fire. And unfortunately, that's difficult to do right now with the conditions of our forests. But we can change that paradigm. We can change the way that we talk about it. But we have to be active before the fire. We can't wait. We can't change the weather conditions, but we can change the forest structure, and and that means that we can change the fire behavior and give ourselves better chances of success. We've been talking about a lot of these issues in our current chair initiative, the Working Lands, Working Communities Initiative, led by Idaho Governor Brad Little, and are really looking forward to continuing to work with the USDA on finding solutions to the wildfire crisis. Do you have any final thoughts on these topics, Ben? Well, first, I'd say thank you to Western Governors Association for taking on that initiative. Certainly appreciate the invitation in October to speak here in Denver, appreciate the opportunity to talk today. But I think that that initiative really gets at what we've been discussing a lot today is that to have success, it takes communities, it takes more than one agency, it takes more than one actor trying to get something done on the landscape. It's how we all come together and work on solving this monumental problem that's plaguing our forests across the West and get more done on the landscape to keep those desired conditions here longer. Yeah, thank you for coming in and sharing your wisdom with us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Out West, presented by the Western Governors Association. To learn more about our ongoing work on natural resources management, please visit westgov.org. And be sure to join us next time as we continue to discuss critical issues facing the Western United States. Finally, WGA would like to thank Ben Woodkey for sharing his expertise on forest restoration. Thanks also to the Working Lands, Working Communities Initiative sponsors, Deloitte and Walker Consulting, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture.
Happy trails, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>